In the consult, we discuss cases that are violent and sexually violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Consult. I'm Julia Cowley, retired FBI agent and profiler and former special agent forensic scientist with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. I'm Angela Sercer, a retired FBI agent and profiler, and I was previously a special agent with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. I'm Susan Kostler-Drew, retired FBI agent and profiler. And I'm Bob Drew, also a retired FBI agent and profiler. Today's episode is going to be a little different because we're not going over a case. Instead, what we thought we'd do is talk in detail about the process involved in criminal profiling. As we discuss cases on this show, the investigative details, crime scene dynamics, victimology, and the behavior exhibited before, during, and after the commission of a crime, We want our listeners to begin developing their own ideas about the type of person responsible or the motive or even how you think you'd interview that person. So we thought it would be useful if we went over some of the basic concepts involved in profiling. First, let's talk about what profiling is not. It's not an exact science. It is not. When you talk about human behavior, There are no exacts. There are no absolutes. There are limitless variations in personal psychology and in the resulting behaviors. And so there can never be a valid claim of an exact profile of an individual's personality or their psychological state. There are indicators, you know, behavioral indicators, things that can be gleaned from an investigation that do shed light on the personality responsible for the crime. But there again, those are informed estimates as opposed to an exact diagnosis. When someone goes to a psychologist or a psychiatrist and they're diagnosed, there is a a very involved process in a clinical setting with both psychometric testing and psychological interviews as well as a review of behaviors and, and what prompted the individual to come into the clinical setting. All of those things are considered. And then someone who is a practicing psychologist or psychiatrist, probably in consultation with their peers, arrive at a psychological diagnosis. There is no way to do the same thing as a profiler. First of all, that is not a profiler's expertise. And secondly, it's not really the function of a profile. And if we were to claim that we could diagnose someone's personality remotely, having maybe never met them or not even knowing who they are, to say the least, that would be hugely irresponsible and could totally misguide an investigation. For that reason, we would never offer a psychological diagnosis based on our observations as profilers. In terms of the term profiling, profiling refers to 
criminal investigative analysis? Yes. Criminal investigative analysis is, I guess, the more technical term that we use. It's a comprehensive process of examination, evaluation, and interpretation from a behavioral perspective of all of the facts, the circumstances, the actions, and the evidence that's exhibited before, during, and after the commission of the criminal act. Should also include in that definition that by comprehensive process, it is a group process. Good criminal investigative analysis is done in a group. It is not done solely. The strength of that is the skills and experience and expertise of each individual in that group that, because of their background, may look at the elements of the crime slightly differently. And that certainly strengthens and bolsters the overall analysis. With regards to a comprehensive examination, we're looking at it from several different perspectives, certainly forensics and what that tells us, the scientific examination of evidence. From an investigative standpoint, what the detectives have been able to ascertain up to that point through examination of crime scene, through their interviews, et cetera, and then behaviorally what we might see with regards to the subject's interaction with the victim or with the crime scene, again, before, during, and after the commission of the act. As opposed to an investigator who has to look at everything whether it be forensic evidence, physical evidence, whether it has to be these crime scene considerations, interview considerations, et cetera. Behavioral analysis and criminal investigative analysis, as we termed it, is something that can focus and not have all these responsibilities that weigh so heavily on typically very competent investigators. What we get to do, the luxury that we have as people performing behavioral analysis is that we can set aside other aspects of an investigation. And we're not subjected to the same pressures that investigators are from the public, from the press, et cetera. What we do is we can focus solely on each and every aspect of a case in terms of what it reflects in behavior and then what that behavior might indicate as far as a personality of an offender. Exactly. Why is it so important to look at behavior? And the reason for that is that traits and characteristics of an individual are generally reflected in their patterns of behavior. And it doesn't matter whether that pattern of behavior is something in normal life or in the commission of a crime. Your patterns of behavior generally remain consistent throughout So how you are in your day-to-day living, the certain way that you act or relate to people or any of your personal characteristics could very well be reflected not only in your normal life, but in the commission of a crime. Yeah. An example of that, I'll use myself. Mm -hmm. I'm early everywhere I go. And if I have to be somewhere and it's important, I'll set three alarm clocks. I'll set my phone, I'll set the clock, and then I'll ask my husband to set his phone in case I've messed those up. This is a behavior that I have repeated over and over and over again. So what does that tell you about me? That I'm wonderful and conscientious? (laughs) Well, and (laughs) knowing that as something that is a consistent trait of your personality, and it's consistently shown in your behavior, 
it would be highly unlikely for you to engage in criminal activity and completely abandon those behaviors. We would expect to see a lot of planning, a lot of preparation, a lot of prep work in order to ensure that everything would go as you had planned it. You would bring with you tools and implements that would facilitate the commission of your crime. And those would be the tools and implements that you considered when you envisioned the crime occurring. You thought these things would either be necessary or advantageous to have with you. It would be very unlikely for someone with the characteristics you described showing up to a scene with no implements and looking around a scene for tools and implements of opportunity. You would be someone prepared who would bring what you needed to best accomplish in your estimation, your crime. And I'd wear gloves as well. (laughs) Go ahead, Angela. No, I was just going to mention and it sounds cliche, but it really is true. And it, and it does prove to be true again and again, but the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And a lot of times we would consider that when doing a profile and you're looking at someone's criminal history that has violent tendencies, then you get a a strong feeling or indicator that that's possibly going to happen again in the future. The only thing that could possibly interfere with that, that would be reflected at a crime scene typically, or would be intoxication or mental illness. If someone is experiencing psychotic episodes, while they might be very well planned in their daily life and in their daily habits, you might see an abandonment of that if they were either highly intoxicated or if they were experiencing some sort of mental break or psychotic episode. There again, that would be something that would be evident and there would be two distinct patterns of behavior that may be present. If that were the case, then you might see a lot of preparation and then seemingly irrational behavior at a scene. But there again, both of those patterns would be indicative of the individual's behavior as a whole, not just at a crime. Yeah. On the organized, disorganized continuum, which we'll talk about, I would be an organized serial killer. Except for your psychotic breaks. We've already touched on this a little bit, but the purpose. Why do people come to a profiler to look at their cases? What's the purpose of it? How do we help? I think one of the best things that we can do for detectives and prosecutors is provide a better understanding of the offense. Sometimes this would start before the offender has been identified. But I think it's important to note that there have been occasions, too, where the offender is identified, was either caught at the scene or shortly thereafter. But because of what occurred, we have questions of why. Why did this person do this? What could possibly have motivated them to do it? And just trying to understand everything that occurred and exactly why they did what they did. So this can be helpful both before and after, certainly before. And in cases where you, even in a single homicide, but you have very unusual aspects, it may be the first time that that department or the prosecutor has ever seen anything like this done to a victim. And just trying to understand what happened and why it happened and what type of individual are they looking for here. If they have multiple subjects potentially that they're looking at, 
behavioral analysis can help to focus possibly down the number of offenders that they do have. As we said, it's not exact, so we never want them to rule anybody out completely, but as they gather more and more evidence or more and more facts, it can be beneficial in saying, you know, this guy more likely than that one. And it can also help with developing some strategies that may lead to to solving the case. I think as someone mentioned before, you're not as personally as involved as the detective is and can look at it sort of from an outside person looking in and do a complete analysis of the case that you can sometimes offer something that they may or may not have thought about, offer some tools that we had in our toolbox to help them develop additional information. All of that takes part in the analysis and can be helpful. I will give one example as far as how this may be beneficial. It was a cold case that I assisted with up in New Hampshire, involved a horrific death of two women, a lot of activity, a lot of behavior going on, and with a suspect that they had had suspects for quite some time but had been unable to have enough evidence to charge. And looking at the dynamic, one of the first things we did in sitting down with the prosecutors and with the detectives was to discuss our feeling that this was a sexually motivated crime. And without getting into a lot of details, that was a perspective that they hadn't really looked at before. It was clearly a violent crime, but because of some of the other circumstances involved, they had not considered this to be sexually motivated. And that helped other elements of the case to fit in. And it also, I think, sort of refocused in the direction that they were going to pursue the case. There's a common misconception that we somehow have expertise in the same areas as investigators, but beyond them. And that's not true. Investigators are very good at solving crime. And when you reach that level within a a law enforcement agency, when you reach the level of being a homicide investigator, an arson investigator, sex crimes, sex crimes investigator, any of those things, you have, generally speaking, a proven track record of competence. And then you have numerous cases and a lot of experience at solving those types of crimes. The problem is crime itself is normally perpetrated for some, some form of rational reason, whether it be to obtain money, property, whether it be the motive of revenge, whether it be to to obtain sexual access to someone. Crime in and of itself is not, quote, normal because you're stepping outside the boundaries of respectable and moral behavior. However, investigators can track these crimes because there is some rationale at play. When we typically were contacted and consultation was arranged was when behaviors did not seem to follow a a rationale. They didn't seem to be tangible payoff either in the crime itself or in a certain aspect of the behavior reflected at the crime scene. It just didn't seem to make any sense as far as accomplishing the crime or some rational goal. That puts everyone sort of outside of their element. If your experience is, quote, normally investigating crimes with a rationale, you don't understand why there might be particular details reflected at a crime scene that did not facilitate the crime and did not result in an extra payoff to a rational end. This is where individualistic aberrant behavior enters the picture. 
And that was something that we could focus on to the exclusion of all else. And it would shed not only insight into the person's personality and behavior, but it was very much an individualistic view. It was something that perhaps, or some things that perhaps only this one person was interested in doing. And it may not have had anything to do with the successful accomplishment of the crime or crimes. It may have had a lot more to do with a need or a perceived need on that person's part to express something that they felt they needed to express. That is not normally seen in your general caseload of law enforcement agencies. So the BAU is known for doing profiles of unknown offenders, but the process of criminal investigative analysis is so much more. Behavior analysis isn't just about unknown offenders, like Julia said. It's about, you know, you can weigh in on link analysis or provide a link analysis of different cases that have similarities that may show the same perpetrator that you didn't see before. Even though there are departments or entities in place like FICAP or other law enforcement entities that are supposed to help state and local departments and federal departments communicate, sometimes until there's a link analysis, they may not be aware that there is a link between different cases. Investigative suggestions. So this is a fresh set of eyes looking at a case, being able to tease out little pieces of it to try to help the investigator or the department think about different directions that they can go in that they may not have thought about before. And because we see some of the most unusual and bizarre cases that other federal, state, and local agencies don't see in their routine work, we can see what's worked in other cases. We can see other investigative successes, and we can help by providing that same information to these other agencies that may have never seen a case like this before. Absolutely. Some of the smaller departments, this may be completely new to them. So they're relying on the profiler's expertise and what they've seen in the past cases. Another service that a profiler can provide is interview and interrogation strategies. And basically, this can be based on the background and behavior of the subject that's being interviewed and the experience of the profiler. You could put together a strategy that the officer or agent or whoever's conducting the interview can utilize to get the best results from the subject and get them to open up in a way maybe they wouldn't have before. And I think it's interesting to note that with regards to profiling, that oftentimes we think about violent crimes, but something that both Julia and I did while we were in the unit was also apply this to white collar type crimes where an investigation had been done. A lot of evidence had been collected, getting ready to make an arrest. And we'd be approached by the agents as to for suggestions for interviewing the subjects once they, once they were under arrest. In this case, a lot of times the agents have just been fully focused on making the case, collecting the evidence, putting together everything to charge the offender, and yet haven't focused fully on the offender's personality and what has brought them to that point in their lives and what would be the best approach in order to gain their cooperation in the case. Along that same line, also, if there are several individuals that are to be arrested which one is most likely to cooperate 
with the investigation. And so oftentimes we were not only providing suggestions for interview strategies, but also providing suggestions as to who might be the most willing to cooperate in an investigation. The way I always looked at it is how can we make this person vulnerable to us and so vulnerable that they're willing to talk to us and cooperate with us? Another area which has become more and more popular over the years is threat assessments. And I know personally, I worked on a lot of these when I was in the FBI. And basically, just as Julia said, it's not an exact science. And there certainly isn't one particular characteristic that is going to determine whether someone is a risk. But there are different means of looking at the background of a subject that's of interest to law enforcement to determine an opinion on their propensity for violence, whether they could be That could be an active shooter, school shooting or threat at a school, stalking, workplace violence, lone offenders, all kinds of different areas where a law enforcement entity or someone might be concerned about a particular subject that has not acted out yet, but their concern is that they might. Generally, you assess the subject's personality and behavior just as you do in other types of cases. And you determine whether there's, there's evidence to suggest from movement, from thought to action. So is this person only talking about something that they're going to do and that's their way of relieving stress? Or are they actually going to act on whatever their threat is? In a typical threat assessment, a profiler is going to look at the background of the subject, and that includes their pedigree, their criminal history, their upbringing, family relationships, anything that they are able to ascertain about that particular individual from the requesting entity, and look at risk factors that might cause the individual to act out or make them more of a threat. And that might be seeking revenge or sense of entitlement, whether they have access to weapons, whether they have a violent criminal history, like I was saying, the past is a good predictor of the future, and whether they have mental illness. We don't diagnose people. But if they've already had a diagnosed mental illness that is on record, which a lot of times they don't. And then when we look at triggers, triggers could be something like a recent job event. Maybe they lost their job. They lost their girlfriend or boyfriend. They had a court proceeding and lost their child, things like that. So once we look at that and determine the risk, we can provide a threat risk assessment or an interview strategy some of the things we already talked about. So the threat assessment could lead into other things, how to mitigate the threat, how to keep that person from acting out, or even if they're a low threat, how to keep them as a low threat, little measures like that. A very, very, very important key to this, and you could take a couple of berries off if you want, is that this is very time sensitive. The assessment is only as good at the time that it occurs. It's a snapshot in time. Exactly. One aspect of behavior we should mention briefly, but still mention is communication. And oftentimes when we talk about things reflecting behavior, say at a crime scene or in the commission of a crime, we do not specifically mention communication. However, if or interaction, if you will, personal interaction, if you have crimes against individuals or where the victim is actually present and remains alive after the commission of the crime, it is often quite indicative both of personality and it lends itself very well to linking cases. If speech patterns or if there's writing involved, 
writing patterns are similar. It may not give you much more insight into the individual's personality. That would depend on the content of the message. But the way they communicate or the way that they express themselves is something that you can draw a likely conclusion to that one crime may be related to another because there are idiosyncrasies in the way we all communicate. And if those are unusual and consistent in two or more crimes, we might then operate on the premise that these cases are linked, even in the absence of any physical evidence that would support that. As Susan mentioned, we don't just look at violent crime. We do. There's a lot of violent crime, serial murder, serial rape, sexual assaults, kidnapping, child homicides, stalking. But we've also looked at other things, white collar, public corruption, cyber cases, false allegations. Angela worked in the terrorism unit, threat assessments. There's a lot of different types of cases, not just violent crime, that we can apply behavioral analysis to. Let's talk about the process. And I've mentioned this before. Everyone has their own process. I like to start by looking at the crime scene the crime scene photos, autopsy results, lab results. That's how I start. But there's so much more that we review when it comes to these cases. Victimology is certainly a part of the process. I think some folks might initially think, well, this is about the offender. We're doing a profile of the offender. Why do we need to learn anything about the victim? But as we learn about the victim, we're also learning about the offender. Several things that we would look at. One of the first one being, is this a high-risk victim or a low-risk victim? And by that, you're looking at factors such as, is it an individual who has a substance abuse problem? Is this an individual who maybe lives by themselves in a high crime area? Is this someone who engages in any type of activity that may make them more vulnerable to victimization? Or is it someone who is at low risk? We will discuss in a future case, is this an elderly female who lives by herself in a low crime rural area, who has absolutely no high risk behaviors. Is this someone who, again, has a low risk lifestyle, but possibly due to their activities or their routine may make them more vulnerable to victimization? And this all tells us something about the offender, and especially in a serial case. Did all the victims have a highly routine pattern of activity? Did they have the same schedule every day as far as when they went to school or when they did their grocery shopping or when they took the kids to soccer and when they would be home or they wouldn't be home or when their husband or partner was home or not home? All of these things can be looked at within the victimology. Is this someone who was in a good relationship, intimate relationship? Or were there issues with the relationship, especially if you're trying to determine if this was an offender unknown to the victim or possibly more of a domestic type crime? Another thing with regards to that is victim selection. And we had three things that we would look at with each one of the victims, availability, vulnerability, and desirability. Vulnerability is one of the things I just addressed with high risk and low risk. Was the situation of the victim at the time something that could potentially make them more vulnerable to victimization? We had several cases of serial rapes on college campuses. And an example of that vulnerability would be that, unfortunately, oftentimes the victim 
was someone who was highly intoxicated and going home or back to their apartment, to their dorm room, to their house alone and highly intoxicated, which for someone who was out looking for a victim, this made them far more vulnerable potentially than maybe someone who was not intoxicated and walking with a group of friends, just as an example. In the same way, there's availability. How available is the victim to the offender? Are they in a situation where they can access them quickly? Are they in a situation where they can access them without drawing attention to themselves? And then thirdly, desirability. And desirability is probably the one that is most likely to be sort of pushed off to the side. The offender may very well have kind of the ideal person in mind, but if that ideal victim is not available or vulnerable at the time, and the offender by that time has it in their mind that they wish to offend, then they may have a plan B or a plan C. Maybe not the ultimate ideal, but certainly a victim that's going to meet the desire or the intent or the motive of the offender at that time. Desirability is the term we should explain a little more. There are societal definitions of desirability that change with fashion and they change within different cultures, within race, etc. So it is a changeable standard. Aside from all those general changes, there are also highly individualistic aspects of what is desirable. And in the crimes that we looked at, we were not defining desirability in any particular general way or in any particular cultural way. We were looking at it in terms of what this particular individual found desirable. And that would be as variable as there are people on the face of the earth. Take, for example, a sex crime. It could be a very young child. It could also be a very elderly person. It could be male. It could be female. There are as many different variants of people as there are. A combination of these traits in particular is going to stand out for one individual offender as being the most desirable or a certain cluster of personal traits or characteristics. Therefore, when we say desirability, it is not desirability as is used in common parlance. It is much more desirability in terms of what this particular offender finds most desirable at that particular time. Desirability is the ultimate goal. However, as we've seen in many different crimes, as Susan mentioned, there are different plans, say plan A, plan B, plan C. Let's say that someone is a burglar and looks and says, all right, I've cased this house. I really want to break into this house. And just in case, I've also cased two other residences in that neighborhood. On the night that they plan to perpetrate this burglary, there is a light on and they can see people moving around in their ideal home for burglary. So they opt for plan B or plan C, where there may be nobody home. It might not be as desirable as the first house, but it is still adequate. We see this as far as victim selection. We see it as far as target selection, if it's not a crime against a person, but against a place. Desirability is a high goal for the offender, but it is not a deal breaker. When we're assessing victim risk level, and we're looking at the victim selection process, we're going over the victim's entire background as much as we can. And that can be very invasive. 
and it may seem like possibly victim blaming. But like Susan said, the more we know about the victim, the more we know about the offender and their risk level and why they were selected. Are they targeted? Are they a victim of opportunity? So the things that we want to know about the victim, we want to know about their personality. How do they present themselves to the rest of the world? What are their traits and their characteristics? If, for example, I worked a case where a 93-year-old woman was murdered in her apartment and you think, oh, little old 93-year-old woman, she's very innocent. But when it came to her victimology, she was very disliked. I don't mean to speak poorly of the victim, but she angered people, including others in the same facility that she lived in. And she was difficult to deal with and she berated her caretakers. So that tells us about her potentially a motive. We want to know their lifestyle. What were their attitudes, their values? Who were their friends and families? Were they married? Were they single? What did they do for a living? What was their economic status? Their physical description, daily habits. How did they get around? What was their transportation? How do they communicate with other people? Did they have a criminal history or use alcohol or have a drug problem? And to what extent? What was their mental stability? Do they have mental health issues or not? And were there potentially any significant events in their life prior to their victimization? So we really do a very thorough review of the victims and they can be very helpful to us. We just discussed a case recently, the Walika murders, and the victim's background and information was extremely helpful to me in determining that their risk level was enhanced just by being on the road that day, not because of anything in their background. And so I believe that the motive for the murders was developed on that day on the road. And that's why victimology is so important. And that's how it can be useful. So the next thing that we'll want to look at are the characteristics of the crime scene. Is it organized or disorganized? MO, ritual, signature, we've all heard those terms. What do they mean? Staging, body disposal, organized versus disorganized. Everyone's heard those terms. Organized, as I said earlier, I would be an organized killer. I would plan, I would prepare. I would bring the weapon to and from the scene. If, like Bob said, I suffered from some sort of mental illness or I was impacted by alcohol or drugs, then perhaps the scene might appear more disorganized, might be a crime that I committed on impulse rather than something that I planned and prepared for. I think organized or disorganized also, it could be very indicative of one's personality. As you said, you have daily habits that are indicative of someone who is quite organized and planned, probably meticulous and detail-oriented. When you see someone who's disorganized, it could be the result of, as you said, impulsive behavior engaged in. It could be with very little planning, or it could be someone who, in the planning stages of a crime, is very meticulous and very detail-oriented. And then they get there and they allow themselves freedom of activity that is completely disorganized, at least to the observer, seems completely disorganized. So there are mixes within this and it is a continuum. It's not an either or. And there is also people who bounce to the extremes, whether it be because of, as you said, mental illness or 
intoxication. Could also be because of how the victim responded um, to the offender. If that doesn't go as planned, then things can go from organized to disorganized very rapidly. It's always spoken about how there is no perfect murder. On paper, there are many perfect murders. The problem is when you implement the plan, things don't always go according to plan. Then what started out as organized degenerates into having to think on the fly, which is something that some folks are good at and others are not. Some offenders are very good at thinking on the fly. Others are fine as long as their plan goes to plan and there are no surprises. Very rarely do you see a plan for a crime go exactly as the offender hoped. So you might see a mix of behaviors there. It might be very organized right up to the point where the crime is committed and then seem very disorganized in exiting the crime scene. Some of it may be an underestimation of the impact of the crime itself. Let's say someone is going to commit a murder and is unaware of the emotional or psychological impact of having committed a murder. Now they've committed a murder and they're hit with all these feelings and thoughts and emotions that they had not anticipated. And so their ability to adhere to their own plan is diminished. But these are definitely working terms that we use. We like to look at each behavior and talk about whether it's organized or disorganized because it helps to form a fuller picture of the individual, but we don't like to get locked into them and think that someone is either an organized or a disorganized offender. A few other terms that we hear a lot, MO and ritual. MO, modus operandi. That is just basically techniques the offender uses to successfully commit a crime. It can include a variety of things where the offender chooses to commit their crime, the weapon they use, or whether or not they use gloves or not. And MO can change. MO can evolve. Let's say we're talking about a series of crimes that an individual commits. We might see an MO that is kind of rudimentary in the beginning. And as they encounter, just as we all do, difficulties in doing something, we figure out ways that can facilitate that you might see in a series of crimes, a significant evolution in the MO as compared to ritual, these behaviors that serve no practical purpose, but are indicated in the assessment of the crime. And we're wondering why they're taking place. Those may evolve in expression, but the theme behind them, the personal motivation for engaging in them stays the same. So if someone engages in a very personal expression within a crime, then even if that changes slightly, it expresses the same motivation and the same desire as the previous one. It is probably not going to change significantly, and it's recognizable as having come from the same person. And sometimes the line between MO and ritual can be blurred. And we saw this in the Golden State Killer case. Joe D'Angelo always ransacked the victim's homes, opening and closing the drawers in the cabinets, rummaging through their personal belongings, looking for items to steal. This could correctly be described as MO because it ensured his success in finding items of value to steal. However, as we noted in earlier episodes, if you haven't listened, please go back and listen to episodes one, two, and three. He spent several hours 
in their homes. And he stole items that were of little or no value. And he would continue to ransack the homes even after sexual assault and in between the sexual assaults. It kind of becomes unclear. Is his behavior strictly MO? Is it ritual? And you can't always tell. Going with the Golden State Killer, one of the things that you could say is both ritual and MO is the tying of the victims. The way that someone ties someone could just be practical, or it could also be serving some sort of fantasy that the perpetrator holds. You see tying in a lot of sexually motivated crime, and someone could argue, well, that's practical to immobilize the victim and make them more defenseless. On the other hand, you could say, well, it really isn't necessary. It's something added, and it's because this offender has a particular desire to tie up his victims. Both may very well be true. So it is, again, much like the definition of organized and disorganized, it is better to look at MO and ritual as not either or categories, but are things that overlap one another. Something that we talk a lot and hear a lot about in behavioral analysis is the concept of staging a crime scene. And staging is the intentional alteration of a crime scene, the body, the evidence. And it may, I say may, be a significant indicator of the type of relationship that the offender believed they had with the victim. And along with the physical alteration of a crime scene, what also can occur is something would refer to as verbal staging. And I probably saw this most often where the offender was someone who was an intimate partner or closely related to the victim and deliberately provided information to the investigating agencies to hopefully throw them off the case to move the attention away from themselves and on to an unknown offender to make themselves look less culpable for the crime can be as simple as thinking back on other cases, alleging that the victim was having an affair with someone else. I don't know who it was, but I know they were having an affair to move the attention. So if they've been found dead or if they're missing, it must be because of this affair they were having, trying to blame the lifestyle of the victim for the reason for their disappearance or for them being found murdered, or that they went away. Well, they left to go on a hike, or they went for a drive, or they were away on business, or creating any number of reasons why this could potentially have happened, and providing all that information to the investigating agency as the concerned, in quotes, significant other. And doing that without necessarily, sometimes in conjunction with altering a scene, seeing both actually, but you may have just one or the other as well. Aging often occurs when the offender believes that if the true nature of the crime were discovered, they'd be prioritized as a suspect. And staging is really high risk. As an offender, you're spending more time at a crime scene, which is counterintuitive. You know, your contact with a crime scene, both in duration and in amount, it puts you at, at a rising level of risk. The longer you spend at a crime scene and the more that you're in physical contact with the crime scene, the more likely it is that you'll be apprehended. Yet an individual who engages in staging has decided that if they don't take this extra time to put things in place that will create a different impression than what really occurred, if they don't do this, they're going to be caught. 
They have to increase their risk and go against what would normally be good common sense in for a criminal is to minimize your contact with a crime scene. They have to have a little bit more involvement with the crime scene with the hope that investigators or whoever comes upon this crime scene will not see the real motive and therefore will not prioritize them as a likely suspect. And the same risk that happens with verbal staging is that obviously as investigators continue their investigation, then any discrepancies in the information that the offender has provided are going to come to light. But depending on how quickly that happens, unfortunately, the end result is that it can delay until the investigators start to uncover those discrepancies or start to see, realize that the evidence at the crime scene doesn't exactly make sense with what's gone on, or they begin to, through forensics, be able to identify that the offender was there when they said that they weren't, et cetera. There's been a delay in the investigation, which can be, can, which can be a, at an advantage to the, to the offender. Oftentimes, there might be something that a very personally motivated crime where the offender stages it to look as if it's a random sexual murder, and they'll displace clothing on the victim's body, etc., in hopes that people will interpret it as a sexual crime. When, in fact, through investigation, it's learned that this was not a sexual crime at all, that, in fact, the crime was motivated by some personal slight perceived by the offender. But anyway, it was not a sexual crime. The offender wanted it to appear to people that it was. Therefore, it would obscure that person from immediate consideration as a suspect. I always think about it like this. If the offender has no connection to the victim, they would most likely flee immediately and avoid having continued contact with the crime scene. Moving a body Think about it. You've killed someone and then you're going to spend extra time putting them into the trunk of your car and driving. I mean, imagine the feeling of doing something like that. You wouldn't do it if you didn't need to. If you didn't think there was going to be a connection made, if the police saw the scene for what it was. There is a term called no body homicide where someone is thought to be missing and lo and behold, it turns out that they're actually the victims of a homicide. And just as you said, Julia, if the body is obscured, then someone had an extreme interest in either preventing or delaying the discovery of the murder and would rather have the impression that this victim disappeared. And if they disappeared then there are more suspects or countless suspects that it could have been if there were foul play. It could also be of the victim's own volition. They just left because they wanted to lose themselves and escape their life. When these things happen and and it's discovered that, in fact, that it is a murder, almost in any case I can think of, it is someone who is intimately involved with this victim and knows that the discovery of their status as a murdered person will prioritize them as a suspect. And just as a concealment of a body provides some evidence, the dumping of a body, in other words, out in plain sight alongside a roadway, or the displaying of a body also provides information with regards to the offender. Displaying may be, may be ritualistic, as we've discussed, but it also might be an attempt to create the impression of ritual when in fact ritual is not really part of the 
the murder at all. These things, they're considerations that we use in behavioral analysis, but we are careful not to consider them to the exclusion of other factors. In the case of a body that's dumped, in opposition to one that is concealed, the offender in some cases may be indicating that they have no real concern at all about the person being found murdered. They don't believe that the finding of the body would connect to them in any way. And so simply disposing of it, getting rid of it is not of a concern to them. They don't care if the victim is found or not. It can also show a disregard for the victim as well, a lack of any kind of empathy for the individual, et cetera. But it's very different from one that is concealed. So this brings us to the end of this episode of The Consult. As most of you probably know, becoming a profiler isn't like it's portrayed in the movie The Silence of the Lambs. They don't select you from New Agents training. Generally, profilers have many years of investigative experience in the field, and once selected to the Behavioral Analysis Unit, there is additional specialized training. Angela, Susan, Bob, and I all went through 16 weeks of classes and another one to one and a half years of working cases alongside certified profilers. There are several other requirements as well. What we went over with you today was actually the first lecture we received in our training. And the reason it's the first is because you have to have a good understanding of these concepts in order to conduct a criminal investigative analysis. As I've said before, we want our listeners to also be participating in the consult, examining, evaluating, and interpreting the behavior along with us. And hopefully, this episode provided you with a good foundation to do so. This episode of The Consult was written and produced by me, Julia Cowley. The show was edited and mixed by Mike Aris, and the music was composed by John Hansky. If you'd like to learn more, please visit The Consult website at www.truecrimeconsult.com. That's www.truecrimeconsult.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the consult pod. Thank you for listening.